On this podcast, we share a lot of stories and often the mental health aspect of the work we do creeps in. If you think you might be feeling depressed, stressed, anxious, or even overwhelmed, please consider visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen and help you. And they even have therapists who specifically work with first responders. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. You can talk to your therapist in a private and online environment at your convenience. Many first responders work rotating and often odd schedules, so this format makes it really easy to talk to someone when it's convenient for you. If you don't click with your therapist, you can request a new one at no additional charge anytime. Join the 3 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com backslash roadie. That's BetterHelp.com slash roadie, R-O-A-D-I-E. You can also find the link in the show notes. If you put a couple of first responders together in a room, something interesting happens. Before too long, they'll begin sharing stories. They're not trying to one-up each other, they're simply finding common ground. I was fortunate enough to serve my community as a paramedic and a firefighter for over 25 years. As you can imagine, during that time, I acquired my fair share of stories about the incidents and the calls I was involved in. I thought I might write a book, but then I decided sharing these stories collectively in a podcast would give anyone listening an insider's view into the work that first responders do every single day. These are the stories of the men and women who courageously serve the public or as I like to call them, Stories from the Road. Welcome to Stories from the Road. I'm your host, Phil Klein, and today I have the opportunity to speak with Lieutenant Thomas. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. I appreciate you taking some time out this morning to share this story, and I will turn the mic over over to you and let you share your story from the road. Well, thank you very much, Phil. Uh, I'm a lieutenant, uh, retired now from a department just outside the uh, metro Atlanta area. Uh, we worked in the field about 28 years, been in teaching. So really, once I retired, I'm just really spending all my time teaching and, and, and going around talking about educational topics. Um, it's kind of funny. I got in this in- industry totally by accident. I, I, teaching students the way I do, I run into that a lot. Uh, was looking for something to do shortly out of the military, opened a newspaper, saw an EMT class for 200 bucks and said, hey, this is medical. Let's give this a try. Didn't know the day I walked in the room, I'd fall in love with it. Uh, after that, nothing else. I t- my parents used to laugh at me because I was so ADD that I'd never stay on any one thing at any time. And when I walked in this industry, I just fell in love with it. Uh, the ability to help people, uh, the challenge, and, and the fact that every call is so uniquely different. Uh, one thing I love to tell students is you can't go into automatic robot mode. You've got to critically think constantly. Um, and uh, one of the calls, I guess, that really impacted me early in my career uh, would be. Uh, what we, we, we would assume was just a normal medical call in the middle of the night at one in the morning with 28 degrees outside. And you're going, why am I out running this call? Uh, we got a call for a, a woman with abdominal pain. We get there. We start talking to her. 
nothing out of the ordinary. She's nine months pregnant, wants to go to the hospital, was at the hospital earlier that day and not even started dilating. So we knew really there was no big rush, no big panic here. We did our normal patient history. We noticed two children laying on a pad in the middle of the floor. Not unusual. One of the kids looked up, cried a little bit, went back to sleep. We packaged mom up on the stretcher. We're getting ready to go out the door like we've done a thousand times before. And something just didn't feel right. There was just something I always tell students, trust your intuition. If something doesn't feel right, pay attention to what's going on. Look around, look for more. Knowing that something didn't feel right to me in the situation, I, I asked mom, I said, is someone here with the kids? And she said, yeah, my husband's in the bedroom. And I'm like, well, you'd like to tell him that you're going to the hospital. She said, sure. So she calls out for him. He comes to the door, no clothes on at all. He stands there, staggers for a moment and falls flat on his face. Now, you know, that presented a, uh Oh, what's going on here. So we ran over, started checking him out. All his vitals were perfect. His blood sugar was fine. You know, we're doing pathophysiology as paramedics. We're like, you know, is he got any medications, any medical problems? Has he been sick lately? He's been accidentally, he's been falling lately or anything. We went through the entire gambit of questions and nothing made sense. There's nothing that could indicate why this gentleman walked in the room and just passed out. And once again, that intuition started eating in the back of my head. And I looked at mom and I realized mom wasn't really acting right. She wasn't upset that her husband walked in here and passed out on the floor. She just laid back on the stretcher, calm as a cucumber. And I'm like, what's going on here? So I looked around and suddenly it hit me. It's cold outside. There's heat running in the house. And I've got 100% O2 sats on everybody. And everybody's acting altered. Uh, it's, it was at that moment, my partner and I realized we had a carbon monoxide exposure. And it's kind of ironic because none of the complaints really fit. Mom's complaining of L&D pain, uh, acting alert marina times three, just slightly off kilter. And uh, when we asked mom who else was in the house, it turned out there was an 18-month-old in the bed with dad who had already stopped breathing. My partner scooped the kid up, went out to the truck, started up, um, intubated, bagged the kid. I believe it or not, got him back quickly. Uh, we had a five and six-year-old that was in the pad in the front room and a 13 and 14-year-old in the back room. So I think it's easy when we have these protocols and we have these standard guidelines and we're taught the national registry sheets so you go from top to bottom and you do everything in perfect order. Sometimes it's easy to become automated in asking questions and answering and checking these things off our list. But I think one of the most important skills we can have in our industry is that adaptability to realize we, we, we have to critically think through that list. Yes, because that list ensures that we do everything right, but we have to be open to what is outside that list, that, that unique variable, that, that factor X that always comes in on so many calls. And I think that's what makes our job so unique is you have to be adaptable. You have to keep every, you know, as people like to say, every one of your spidey senses open and aware of what's going on. We often talk about situational awareness and, and we try to teach situational awareness, but all too often when you get that non-emergent call, you, you know, 70, 80% of our calls are that 78, 70 to 80% of our calls are those calls that maybe we don't feel we, we should have to be there, but we are. And you never know, I always tell students, you never know when that 1% call is going to come up. It's going to look like this. 
you're going to walk in. If you're not paying attention, if you're not critically thinking, if you're not looking at all the variables, uh, you're going to miss something. And, and that night, I'm so thankful because that night, at one o'clock in the morning, exhausted and cold, we could have loaded mom up, walked out of there. And the next morning, that would have been a new story. And fortunate enough for the family, you know, we were able to evacuate everybody out, including the other residents that were in the, the, the structure. And uh, save all the rest of the residents, but more importantly, get that family out and get them into uh, definitive care. And and everyone recovered completely, even the 18-month-old that was apneic when we found it. I think it's a, that's a good point you bring up about not being complacent and and looking at the full picture. And I'm just curious, you know, when you recognize that you had a little bit more than just someone having some pain from from being pregnant um, during their delivery date, you know, what did the what did that scene look like? Once you once you made that that recognition, I mean, obviously you had what my my count is correct. You had five patients at that time, and then total of seven seven patients. Yeah, so so more, and then possible exposure to you and your crew as well for being in the house. I don't know how long you were in there, but you know, there's that exposure as well. So, what does that call look like once you once you make that realization of what's actually going on? It's funny, and yeah, we did. We were probably on scene almost 15 minutes. I think the saving grace for us was, you know, I think the. The carbon monoxide levels, I, we didn't have the equipment on the truck at the time. This is long ago before we had air monitors on every truck. But I, I think uh, with a, I think it was a low exposure and it was just long term because, you know, carbon monoxide cumulative, you know, it, it builds up. So I think it was low enough that it didn't affect my, myself or my partner as much. But, you know, often and I, I, I tell you what I love about our industry. Everybody loves trauma. You know, you can go out there and people love to talk about the trauma they run, but trauma is simple. If it's not breathing, you breathe it. If it's bleeding, you plug it. If it's missing fluids, you give fluids. I mean, it, that's trauma. To me, medical is the big, I think medical is what challenges our practitioners because it's not always obvious. And it's often convoluted on multiple medical levels. You've got multiple medical problems and people always try to go for the simplest answer first. They try to go straight to what's the most obvious and often the most obvious isn't what's really the problem. So I think we find ourselves putting those pieces together. And I can remember like yesterday sitting in that floor on my knees beside this this big guy who's looks perfectly healthy with no medical problems, no other issues. And looking over at mom who's nine months pregnant, because if you count the, the unborn baby, there was actually 10, um, eight patients total in that situation and trying to just put those pieces together and, so I think that's one of the challenges I like so much about our job. And, and when we did have to do those medical calls or those complex fires where you get there and it's not just a thousand square foot home with three bedrooms, but it's multi-story and you've got to, you've got to figure all this approach out. And literally you've got to figure this out in minutes or people stand to lose their lives. So it was really perplexing to just sit there and try to put all these pieces together that didn't make sense. Um, no, I, I get exactly what you're saying. I was I was uh, just telling somebody this story uh, probably just a couple of days ago. I was field training a new paramedic, and 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 you know I spent some time in New York City and back in the uh, the early '90s. You know, I ran heroin overdoses constantly. You know, we were we were running out of Narcan, and then it died down for a while. And now we're seeing those again. But we were in a public library, and uh, we had we got a call for a, for a male that was unconscious, and we went into the into the library bathroom, and there was a, a gentleman laying on the floor with an insulin syringe next to him. And my my new medic that I was training, you know, immediately thought that was a diabetic, low blood sugar, passed out. 
you know, and as he's making a beeline for the guy, I'm grabbing him by the back of the neck going, you know, hang on a second. There's a little bit more to this than you think. And, and to me, it was obvious because I'd seen it before. But uh, for him as a new medic, you know, he, he, he would dove right in. And you know as well as I do how dangerous, you know, those, those types of calls can be because if there's one needle, there's two or three and, you know, everything else that goes along with it. So uh, that, that complacency will get you in trouble really quick. And not just in medical calls. I mean, in, in fire calls, uh, they're, they're just as dangerous. And, and we see that as well. Absolutely. You know, that, that, that's the big thing, you know, wh- whether it was at the department as a lieutenant, you know, with a crew or whether you're talking about as an educator in a classroom, uh, you know, I've done fire classes and, and EMS classes uh, as an instructor. And I'll tell you, it, it's so important to teach uh, students to be so situationally aware. And, and, you know, and, and the complacency is not just the problem with the new guys, it's the old guys, too, because, you know, when when we get so comfortable, I, I love to tell new paramedic students. I'll never forget the day I went from responding to a cardiac arrest, writing down drug dosages on my glove and, and, and preparing myself. Oh gosh, I hope I can get this tube. I'm beginning. And then a a switch flips one day and you're eating a hamburger in the front of the rig going, (laughs) you know, laughing and joking on the way to the call. You're not even worried about it. There's that switch where we go from being so cognizant of, are we going to do a good job and, and getting comfortable with our job roles and being able to do that to, Suddenly now it's second nature muscle memory. And of course you go further in your career, you know, we've, we cross a point where we can get so comfortable complacency sets in. And that's one of those important things I just drill into both guys in the field and students that uh, complacency kills. If it doesn't kill you, it can kill your patient. It can kill uh, victims in a fire uh, in any situation. Yeah. You know, the one thing that jumps out to me and, and, and I was an instructor as well. And I, and I, I used to talk to other you, I, I taught at colleges, a um, little different situation than you are, but um, I talked to other health sciences instructors, professors, if you will, um, teaching nursing classes, surge tech. And, and I pointed out that paramedics are the only allied health professionals that are going to graduate from a program, go out in the field, and essentially be on their own. Everybody else works with a team. And while we may work with a team, you know, we don't have the same resources that a nurse would have or a surgical technologist would have. You know, we have to make those decisions on our own and we have to critically think through the calls that we're on. Um, and sometimes we have guidance from medical control, you know, a doctor on the other end of the phone. But oftentimes when you're in a rural setting or when that phone line isn't working, you're on your own and you've got to make decisions that directly affect a patient's life. So if you misdiagnose or if you're not skilled enough or, um, you know, generally, if you just miss something, somebody's going to pay a, a big price for your um, lack of ability to critically think through that call. And, and I think that's what really separates, at least from an education side, the work that paramedics do compared to any other allied health field. Oh, I, I absolutely agree. And, and not only do we essentially, at least for 20 minutes, work on our own making all those decisions, but you've also got to think about the noise that's out there. You know, the background, the the families, the potential for violence. Uh, if you're on the roadway traffic, I mean, you and I worked in the same area and we all know what I-20 or 285 is like when you're working in an accident or something. Or so, you know, there's a lot of noise, there's a lot of background. It's really an uncontrolled and unknowing environment versus, like you said, all the other allied health fields. And I think that's what gets lost sometimes. Because and, and you've done this as well when you teach an ACLS class and we have nurses or someone who's from a, a more of a facility based uh, care paradigm, they come in and start running mega codes with EMS and fire professionals and 
they're blown away because there's so many other aspects we filter into that mega code. And I think the the danger, and, and you mentioned that you and I teach in different teach in different environments, and, and that's very, very true. Because one of my concerns with fire and EMS education as we go forward is there's a huge push to change fire in, in EMS education into more structured um higher education formats. And don't get me wrong, I'm going back from my master's right now and I totally believe in higher education. But one of the problems is we can't strip that academy training away from these people. That's where we teach that critical thinking. That's where when we throw them in a burn building or we throw them in a maze or we we throw them in a search and rescue situation and and we expect them to critically think their way out with ever-changing, evolving conditions, you just can't sterilize that down to a lecture hall. And I, I worry a lot of times that especially since COVID, now that so much education has went online and I get it, it's more convenient, it's easier, it, um, it does give more access to people, uh, but there's just that dynamic, critical thinking, situational awareness that if we don't hammer into these kids coming into our industry, they're going to get out there and lack the most important tool to keep them safe and to keep their patients and, or, or victims in, in, in fire rescue situations. And it's critical. We just we, we, we continue to teach this. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying. And, and I work in the higher education field. I teach at a college or I'm an administrator at a college now, but I did teach my paramedic program through a college. Uh, and it was a struggle sometimes to make those those you know real life scenarios as real life as I possibly could. You know, people look at me a little bit crazy when I'm walking down the hall with a mannequin and juggle blood that I picked up during Halloween time. But uh, you you have to do that, and you have to you have to bring in the realism. And the same thing goes for fire training. You know, you can't sterilize, like you said, fire training. You can't teach it in a le- lecture hall. You know, a hot room is a hot room, and 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 you can't you can't describe that. You've got to feel it. Um, so, in terms of education, yeah, I think there is uh, certainly something lost if you're not teaching the realism and not bringing the realism. Uh, into the classroom or bringing the student to the environment where they can feel that realism. It, it's incredibly important. Um, and, and you know, I worry about it too, especially with everything being online post-COVID. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and I know the program used to run, used to run an amazing program. I'm sure you still run a great program up in West Virginia. Uh, and, and, you know, it's ultimately, I've always said EMS and fire education programs truly come down to the instructors. It's the guys delivering it. Uh, I don't care. I've seen the best fire and EMS programs taught out of the back room of a community center. And I've seen some of the best programs run out of a technical school. Um, you know, it, it really comes down to what we put in it. And I think that's one of those. Yeah. When I retired, you know, a lot of, I've got a lot of my friends retiring. I'm 53. I've, you know, I've been in the industry now going on 33 years. A lot of the guys are retiring right around me right now and they're all looking to do different things. And, and I, I've always intended, I've taught on and off since early 90s, I always knew my retirement would be in education um, because as providers, we're able to go out there, do what we do, give to the community, make a difference every now and then, and uh, feel good about everything. And education, I, I love it, and you know this also, is we're not affecting one or two patients at a time, we're affecting 20 to 30 providers at a time, and then those providers go out and touch a lot of lives, so it's like, I like to make the joke, it's ultimate pyramid scheme. Uh, we reach more people as educators and providers like that. Um, but, you know, I, I think that's the greatest gift that that us older guys who are either at, at the end of our careers or 
approaching retirement or even retiring can pass on is to just help teach this younger generation who's coming in who are dynamic. I mean, these kids, you know, these kids are fired up. They're passionate about it uh, with a lot of the social issues right now. You know, really, you've got kids that, out there that really want to do some good for, for their communities. And, and, and I love it. And as both fire and EMS is evolving, you know, we're seeing better pay, better benefits, better representation. So it, it, it's a, it's a great career for these kids to get into, you know, there's not a lot of jobs you can go into and retire with two or three retirements and make more money retired than you did when you worked in the industry. But if we're not teaching these kids vigilance, we're not teaching these kids how not to become complacent. We're not teaching them how to critically think and giving them those values that every call they run. I tell my students at graduation all the time, the day you wake up and you don't want to go to work, it's time to change industries. The day you go into that house and you can't look at your patient or you go to that alarm off and you don't take, you don't, you don't have that pep to go out there and do it right. Change industries. Uh, we don't, we don't bag groceries for a living. We don't stock shelves for a living, you know, ultimately 20 to 30% of those calls, you know, our decisions and our actions make a difference in people's lives. And, um, it's, uh, I tell you, I, I had a paramedic student that gave a speech at one of my graduations that literally, I'm gonna tell you, dude, I've never teared up at a graduation so bad in my life. Uh, she, uh, she had told a story about how she had come home. She'd just taken a CPR class. She was 16. She came home and uh, found her dad um, in full arrest in a recliner and she grabbed him and she pulled him out of the recliner and she knew definitely it was beyond, but she still did what she knew she needed to do. And her mom is sitting there crying. And she said, she said the greatest feeling, the greatest sense of relief she had ever experienced in her life was hearing the sirens off in the distance. Now, she said she knew that they weren't going to be able to get her daddy back, but she knew the minute they got there, she didn't have to do the CPR. And she said she looked at her mom. She goes, mom, it's going to be okay. They're almost here. And that's what, you know, I I mean, I I teared up about that because we run these calls, whether it's that 70, 80% of calls that we really don't need to be there, or even those emergent calls like that, which we know ultimately not going to make a difference on. But the thing is, we don't stop to take into account how the public looks at us. We don't look at how important, even when we can't save a life, but just our presence of being there matters to them. So, you know, I tell students all the time on that, you know, we, we've got to understand that even when we don't think we're affecting a change, we still affect the change on so many levels for the public. When you were telling that story, it reminded me of, you know, what I would what I would do typically the first day of an EMT class or a paramedic class. And I'd ask a very simple question. I said, why do people call 911? And I get the answers, you know, well, there's a car accident, something's on fire. And, and the answer is really simple. People call 911 when they run out of options. Right. So you're the you're their last best option at that point. And, and going back to what you were saying, you know, when those sirens come, people realize there's help on the way. There's an option. I don't have to do this myself anymore. So... Um, I think that that really is is just an incredible story, um, and my my heart goes out to that to that girl and her and her family. But I know that graduating your program, which you know you said some nice things about mine, I'm going to return the the favor because you know I know I know the dedication of your program, and I know the the quality of the paramedics and EMTs and advanced EMTs that come out of it, and they are they are some of the best. Um, and I know that particular individual is 
not even because of the education that they got, but I think because of the experience that she got early on in her life is going to be an incredible paramedic when, when you add all those factors together. Going back to, uh, to this call that you shared with us, what are the takeaways? So what do you, what would you share with a, with a rookie firefighter when you, when you tell this story or a rookie paramedic when you tell the story? I mean, just to boil it down to a couple of key points, you know, in my experience, the calls that are going to bite you in the rear, the quickest, if you will, pardon the, the vernacular, um, the, the calls that are going to get that's going to bite you is the ones when you walk in the door, you're complacent. You're not you're not really worried because this sounds like a non-emergent uh, complaint. You shouldn't even be here. There's three cars in the parking lot or driveway. And why are you up at one o'clock in the morning? Don't ever take that attitude because you never know when that one change of that X factor, that one situation is, is going to be something totally different. And, and we teach and we scream and we preach and we yell, don't get tunnel vision. And we all know it, but occasionally we all get tunnel vision. And, and especially when you factor in, you know, we're from the South, so we're not used to cold weather. So the minute it gets cold, nobody wants to be outside. Or if it's raining and pouring down, the last thing you want to do is spend 20 minutes on an outdoor scene. But sometimes we have to do that. And that, I think that's the thing to take into account is don't let that noise muddle your thinking. Don't, don't let that noise make you fast track through that critical thinking. Uh, we, we teach our medics and our firefighters to follow a step of series, whether it's your MPQ sheets or your national registry sheets, you know, you're, you're taught to go step, 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 but don't allow the noise. Don't allow the weather. Don't allow it being three in the morning. Don't allow this being your 14th call to make you skip or rush through. Always pay attention. Always stay vigilant. Always keep the situational awareness on. And, you know, when we talk about situation awareness, we normally talk about it from a security point of view. You know, where's the exit or is there any any threats on scene we have to worry about? But situational awareness is not just violent scenes. Situational awareness plays hugely into medical calls because the I'll tell you, I think what the three things that keyed me in, other than just intuitively knowing something didn't sound right with mom's complaints, something just didn't, it didn't fit right. It didn't fit the model. And of course, we know a lot of complaints don't fit the models perfectly all the time, but queuing in the cold weather, the unorthodox heat that they were using, the altered LOC of mom. And it, and it wasn't obvious at first because mom was alert and orient times three. Mom answered all answers correctly. It was just a very uh, laissez-faire approach she had. She just was way too laid back. And uh, then, of course, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, the confirming factor for me is the 100% O2 sat on both patients I checked. Um, most people, a lot of people, I don't know if your listeners know this, but carbon monoxide shows up in the bloodstream as oxygen. So when you put, you may have someone unconscious dying from a carbon monoxide exposure and you put a pulse ox on, uh, it reads 100%. And, and not only does carbon monoxide get on quickly, you know, we like to tell students carbon monoxide has a 255 times more affinity for locking on those red blood cells and staying there. And literally this entire family had to go to Emory and sit in hyperbaric chambers to force all the carbon monoxide back out of their bloodstream to recover them. And, and I'll tell you, Phil, I wasn't even going to talk about this, but I, you just, you, you just accidentally made me tag on one of my pet peeves as a fireman and as an educator, and that's a pulse ox. And I'm going to tell you why it's a great tool to give you hints of what's going on. But too many practitioners in the field uses it as, as an absolute tool. You walk into a trouble breathing patient. You put, I've seen 
guys in the field put a pulse ox and go, oh, you got a pulse ox of 99%. You don't have any trouble breathing. That is never, ever the case. And, I, you know, going back, telling students, you know, we don't, we don't normally breathe because of our oxygen low. We normally breathe because of our blood pH and high carbon dioxide level. So you can have a normal pulse ox and be in serious trouble. So that's, I hate to get on the teaching soapbox there for a moment, but that's just one of the, I, I've even made the comment that in, in some situations, I think, you know, taking the pulse ox away from some of the lower first responder trained people might be a good idea because it is a tool that's easy to, to lean on and falsely believe everything's okay when it's not. A lot of factors go into that. Yeah, and there's a lot of tools like that. You know, cardiac monitor is is something that you know people depend on and and forget to look at their patient. Um, on fire calls, how many rekindles have you been on because someone used a tick to look for fire in the wall, right? Exactly. So, you know, thermal imaging camera, and you and you, and you miss something. So you, there, there's no escaping. You know, good old fashioned, for lack of a better term, detective work, and and really figuring out what's wrong with the patient and doing a good assessment, or you know, opening up a wall and seeing if there's fire behind it because you know you had a fully involved kitchen and. You, know, you have a wall that you just couldn't get to. So I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that we rely sometimes on the on the tools and we forget to rely on our on our own ability. And I tell you, something that really bothers me, and I hear this from a lot of guys who've been in the industry 25, 30 years, uh, with our staffing shortages across the nation at all departments, fire, EMS, law enforcement, you name it, and there's staffing shortages everywhere. What we're seeing in the industry is a huge turnover where these young young people are entering the industry. And they're moving up in the ranks very quickly. And we're losing our generation very quickly. And, and when you when you have 10 guys go out of a department that's got 30 years plus experience and you bring 10 new, new guys in, your department's losing a wealth of knowledge. I mean, a huge wealth of knowledge. So, you know, I've seen one department that um, I've really been impressed with because they're, they're employing their guys who are retiring to come back as educators and to teach some of their rookie classes instead of, you know, you know how it works in the departments. The, the, the young guys have been in the industry 10 years. They're doing all that training and all that instructing to try to work up in, in, in ranks and, and, and add certification. That's great. But, but these guys who have 30, 25, 30 years experience, you know, they're the, they're the professors of our industry, if you will. And I'd like to see a lot of agencies really, employ these guys to come back and, and do training because the, and, and even the technology concept we talked about sterilizes our field some, you know, and, and I don't want to hammer on any other professions, but we all know what profession walks in a room, talks to you for three minutes and walks back out and governs your health care. And every one of us leaves that room feeling like we've been <clears throat> okay. You know, and uh, you know, that's the thing that makes us special. Uh, and I love it. I've always loved the fact that we can pick a patient up at home, spend 30 minutes with them, one-on-one care in the truck and the transport, get them to the hospital. And now they're one of nine that the nurse is taking care of. And then if you follow that care, uh, you see the attention to the individual convoluted down step by step or diluted down step by step by step. So suddenly now when you're going to the doctor's office and being seen by your primary provider, you know, you're one of 25 that's being seen that day. I think our industry has an amazing ability to give a lot of individualized one-on-one care and, and, and really take care of those people. And that's, that's the important thing. Uh, is always remember I, there's a book. Well, actually, go on YouTube and Google 
the, uh, the Golden Circle of Wine by Simon Sinek. I love his stuff. And what he talks about is the most important thing to do any job well is to know the why. And that's what I tell my students to do. Every day you wake up, you're going to work. Spend five minutes thinking why you do this job. If you know your why and your why is respectable, you'll be happy in this industry for the rest of your life. But you got to remember, don't let the noise, don't let the stress, don't let the burden bring you down. Um, I, I, I miss the station days more than I could ever. I mean, I, I just miss it so much. And, uh, you know, I even go back every now and then and eat with my old crew, um, as many of them are still there. But us as senior members of the industry, we really need to help these kids uh, learn the important life skills because I think that's one of the things – Today's generation is smarter than we have ever been. They've got more resources than we ever have. They've got more educational outlets and opportunities than our generation ever had. You know, you remember when you and I were kids, the, the highest level of technology we had was a reel-to-reel projector or an overhead projector. And, and now these kids walk into a classroom with more resources than, they, than we could have ever dreamt of. But it's the human element that can get lost with technology. It's the human element that can get lost when we when we go to virtual so much, and it's a human element that that gets lost in that sterile environment. And uh, I think that's what makes our educational um, organization so successful. Is I force our staff to put the human element first. If you take care, you know, if you take care of the people and you give them the opportunities, they're going to flourish. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um... As we wrap this up, um, is there anything else that you want to add? Perspective is everything. And this is going to be gross for a moment. And it's actually a graphic I'm actually going to work up soon and start using in some of my stuff. But perspective is everything. Uh, my girlfriend just had surgery, so I've been taking care of her at home a little bit. And she wanted a bowl of chicken soup. So I fixed her a bowl of chicken soup, carried in. And man, I'm on keto, so I can't have it because I'm trying to lose some of this 50-year-old weight. And I'm going, God, that soup looks so good. Look at it. I mean, all the noodles and everything, all the vegetables. So I give it to her, and she eats three or four bites. And, of course, being post-surgery, she doesn't feel like eating a lot. So I go over, and I pick it up, and I walk into the bathroom, and I dump it in the toilet. And I look down at it and almost lost it for a moment because I'm like, it looks like vomit. Perspective is everything. In the bowl, that soup looked delicious. In the toilet, it looked like something bad. And when we go into our job every day, when we put that uniform on, our perspective should be right. And that perspective is chosen chosen by us every morning. We wake up and we choose how we want to see the world today. And when we put that uniform on, it's our duty, our obligation, and our human responsibility to have the right perspective to realize what we represent, what our job out there is to do, and to put people first. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you're listening on. Stories from the Road is a Brown Dogs Media Group production. This one-man show is written, edited, and produced by Phil Klein. If you have a story you would like to share, please contact us at storiesfromtheroadpodcast at gmail.com. To learn more about this or other podcasts we're producing, please visit browndogsmedia.com. Thank you for listening.